Before we start the show, I want to thank the thousands of you, the thousands who have read This Book Will Make You Dangerous. Many of you have told me that the book's unique way of exploring fear, confidence, and purpose has had a lasting impact, that it's much easier for you to get clarity and direction about what really matters and what you want to do in this lifetime. It's also amazing to hear that quite a few of you have read it multiple times and even bought copies for friends. So thank you again. Just in case you weren't aware, I created a free companion video course for the book. And in these videos, I walk you through the big takeaways and practices from each chapter. And I even cover some extra stuff that's not included in the book. Information on how to access the course is in newer versions of the book. And if you own an older version of the book and you don't know how to access the course, just hit me up via the contact form at triplinear.com and we'll get you all set up. And one last thing, if you're one of the thousands who have already read the book, please consider leaving an honest review on Amazon so that others can decide if it's right for them. Again, thank you so much for reading. This book will make you dangerous. And now let's start the show. You are listening to the new man beyond the macho jerk and the new age wimp. Your host is men's coach, Trip Lanier. Do you ever get negative thoughts that you just can't seem to shake? Do you get all fired up to make a change, but then eventually end up quitting? And are you hoping that one day you'll have all this crap figured out and you won't have to worry about it anymore? Phil Stutz and Barry Michaels are here to discuss the tools that'll pull your butt out of a rut and share how these tools have helped other guys do some amazing things. Is it too good to be true? Let's find out. Welcome to The New Man. Today, we have two guests. They are the authors of The Tools, Five Tools to Help You Find Courage, Creativity, and Power, and Inspire You to Live Life in Forward Motion. The first guy, Phil Stutz. He's a psychiatrist. Phil, welcome. Thanks. It's great to be here. I'm looking forward to having fun. Yeah. And uh, Barry Michaels, he's a psychotherapist. Barry, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So between the two of you, there's over 60 years of experience uh, in shrinkdom and helping guys out in this way. But, um, I, I, you know, before we jump in, Barry, I'm just curious, what, what would have a guy out there who's stuck in traffic right now or he's on a treadmill? I mean, why should he care about the tools? What, what are they used for? Well, the guy stuck in traffic and on the, um, trying to get on the treadmill should, should care about the tools because especially getting on the treadmill is something we all avoid doing. I mean, all of us have things in our lives that we just know we should do for ourselves, whether it's starting a new business or writing down an idea that we have or making love to our wife or spending more time with our kids. And we avoid doing these things when it really comes down to it. We avoid doing them because there's a little bit of pain associated with doing anything. Mm -hmm. Just taking action is effortful and a little bit painful. The first tool in the book actually describes a way of bringing up a force inside of you that's so unstoppable, it can get you to do whatever you're avoiding. Okay. That sounds pretty good, but that's just one. So there's a few other, what are the other sticking points that the tools address? If the guy's stuck on the freeway, um, if he's like me, I think most males, he's going to start to get more and more pissed off, um, lose control of his temper, maybe even flip somebody off, etc. All things that are a waste of time. And that state 
in which you feel mistreated by the world and you feel the world isn't fair and things are very frustrating. We call that the maze. And the reason we call it a maze is once you get into that state, it's very hard to get out of it. Again, you know, some people are in the maze more often than they're not. Meanwhile, life keeps going. Life passes you by and you're um, cursing out. Can we curse on this show? Yeah, yeah, please. Okay. Please do. Come on, Phil, let me have it. <laughs> okay. You're <laughs> your motherfucking the guy that cut you off. <laughs> Maybe you even... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe even follow him off the freeway, you know, then he gets a bat out of his car, you realize it was a bad idea. But the whole thing is a complete waste of time. So our tool called Active Love is actually very practical. It's not just a lovey-dovey thing, you know, um, tiptoe to the tulips. It's practical. And I think that the practicality of the tools, I think, is what makes them unique and I think uniquely uh, attractive to males. Because the average male wants to know what to do. Yeah, it, it, being in that grudge place where even if it's, you know, we're, we're on the highway, but there's also like maybe our girlfriend broke up with us or something like yeah. that, or the boss did something, and we get into that place where we're not moving forward in our life until this guy does something, and we've that's where we've lost our power. You've lost your power, and also your adversary has taken up residence in your head, and you can't get them out of your head Ugh. because you're waiting for them to make it right for you. This gives you a way to make it right for yourself and move on. Now, a lot of what a lot of guys say is, well, you're telling me to turn the other cheek. I can't do that. I got to confront what happened. And we're saying you can go ahead and confront what happened. But after you use active love, the confrontation will actually be more productive. Okay, big stuff. And so, Phil, tell us a little bit about the third tool where, um, yeah, tell us about the third tool where I, I, I'm, I'm freezing up. I'm not bringing my real self to the world. Yeah, um, that's a little bit more involved. But basically, the freezing, which I'm um, a victim of myself or a perpetuator of myself, the freezing has to do with what we call the shadow. Now, every single person has some part of themselves they are hiding from the world, okay? Um, for some people, it may be something about their physical appearance. Um, from somebody else, it may be maybe they didn't graduate from the right college. I don't make enough money, whatever. Yeah, I don't make enough money, whatever. Now, those are just superficial insecurities, but at the end of the day, when they're in front of an audience, and when we say audience, we mean anybody whose reaction you care about. It doesn't have to be a thousand people. It could be your spouse. It could be a couple people at work that you have to present in front of. But as long as you care about their reaction to you, they own you. And that's what we call outer authority. Because you've got this shadow thing, and if you want, we can go into it in detail. You've got this shadow thing you're trying to hide. And when you try to hide something in front of a person or persons who whose opinion is important to you, you tend to freeze up because it's like, am I hiding this well enough? You know, they find out I actually went to Northridge instead of Harvard. Uh-oh. Mm-hmm. They see that. You know, do they, are they looking down on me, et cetera? Okay. And, and so, yeah, I wanted to just get a, a high-level view of this. So that takes us to the fourth tool. Barry, what's, what's the fourth tool that has to do with negative, negative thinking? 
Okay, so almost everyone has had the experience of waking up at 3 or 4 in the morning, um, just their head filled with the worst worries. Mine usually is, you know, I noticed another mole on my arm. I wonder if that's a melanoma. And within two or three seconds, people are attending my funeral. And if it's a really (laughs) bad night, by the way, nobody comes. Um, Oh, oh, man. I'll come back. I promise. (laughs) Thank you. Well, I don't know if I want you, given that you went to Northridge instead of Harvard. But... But the, the, that that's like a black cloud. You're, you're just surrounded with negativity, and people get into this state, and they literally don't know how to get out. What we've found is that you can't actually think your way out of it. Anyone who's been up at 3 in the morning knows that the power of positive thinking is a joke, because negative thoughts have much more power than positive thoughts have. And that's because of a superstition that we can go into, which basically has to do with the, the idea, it's kind of magical thinking, that by thinking negatively, we are actually protecting ourselves from horrible things that might happen to us. Okay. So thinking, thinking positively doesn't overcome thinking negatively. What overcomes it is an overwhelming sense of gratitude for the myriad ways in which the universe is supporting you. And think about it, your body, your heart beats for 70 or 80 years without you even having to think about it. Your digestive system works. Your children smile at you at the end of the day. Your dog wags his tail when you come home. When you can start to generate a stream of things that you feel grateful for, your heart starts to open up and you actually stop thinking completely. You just fill yourself with gratitude and you feel supported by the universe. That gets you out of the black cloud essentially. And it's a tool that's very, very effective for all kinds of negative thinking. I've just used the example of worries, but it can be vicious self-criticism. It can be judgmentalism toward others. You know, guys get into this nitpicky thing with their girlfriends. You can flip yourself out of that state. And the grateful flow is what does it. Okay. Excellent. And then, uh, Phil, tell us about the fifth one. Uh, the last one there about, uh, it's called Jeopardy. Yeah, um, here's the thing. Um, when I first discovered these tools, and then I worked with Barry, we discovered more of them, we refined them. The tools work great. Um, I'm not saying that to Brad, just empirically watching what happened. Um, all of the symptoms that we've discussed so far, the tools could make the symptom go away now, but they don't make the symptom go away forever. You have to keep working on it. And what we found, interestingly enough, is everyone stopped using the tools, everyone. And these were people that were paying us a lot of money, and they were people that knew that the tools worked. They still stopped using them. Now, and that's a absolutely um, widespread, universal human tendency. Um, now, why do they stop using the tools? The answer is everybody has this secret goal, And the secret goal is, we call it exoneration, is to be excused from the universe, from life itself. And the nature of life, as far as we're concerned, is that it's um, uncertain, that there's pain in it, and most of all, that it requires constant work. It doesn't matter how successful you are, how good you're feeling, whatever. Life is going to throw you a curveball or a slider or whatever, and you're going to have to work on yourself. Now... Exoneration says 
I'm on easy street. Usually, especially with males, usually it has to do with money and power. So you look at somebody else and you'll say, well, if I, if I was in the position that guy was in, if I had the cash he had, et cetera, I'd be on easy street. I wouldn't suffer. I'd have no problems, et cetera. Now, that causes people to quit using the tools. Now, the other reason they quit, obviously, is the tools don't work, which is a separate issue. But um, Jeopardy says... If you're making a horrible mistake if you stop using the tools. You're also making a horrible mistake if you quit on yourself in terms of what you want to accomplish in life. And if, even if you accomplish it to a degree, you're still going to have to keep working. Now, the way the tool works is you, you, you need a version of yourself that's 92 years old that's dying. This person has no more time. His moments in the world are used up, and he's looking back at you screaming at you and basically telling you, don't waste this moment. It will not come again. Mm. Now, for people to put them, and that creates what we call urgency, and urgency is the um, keynote of uh, willpower. So the Jeopardy tool is actually a tool to remind you that your time here is limited. What you want to do is going to be, for yourself, is important. And you have to have your willpower triggered at all times. There's no end point to that. Um, and we try to be honest in the book about it. It's like the tools will work, but they're only going to really, ch and they can change your life, no question, but they're only going to change your life if you don't lay down and you're willing to use them consistently, which really means for the rest of your life. Well, let's talk about exoneration for a second, because I, I, I have, I, when I'm unconscious, I've, I can, I can, I just, you know, if I catch myself being unconscious, I can look and see where my decisions were heading. And there was this underlying unconscious belief that that's the thing that's going to free me. Like, I'm going yeah. to be done, you know, whether it's, you know, my physical health, my financial situation, whatever's going on with my, my marriage or life in general. But there is this sense of like, there's a finish line. And um, I see a lot of guys, obviously, in my work as a coach, but people that listen to the show that we fall into this trap of being in the personal development jackass and that, the, that we're going to get to this place one day where, we're, where we'll be done. And we won't have to work anymore. We'll be free from the worry. We'll be free from having the work. And that one, one of these podcasts or one of these stories or whatever is going to be the end. Um, when I read about exoneration in, in, in your book, I, something clicked for me. I was like, that's this underlying hope that one of these things will be it. But you've built it into the tools. They're like, no. It's the opposite. You're going to have to work your whole life if you want. You got to stay at the wheel, basically. That's what I'm hearing. Is that what you guys are? Is that what you're saying, Barry? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I I don't mean to tout the well. I do mean to tout the book, but I don't mean to, to, to flatter us or anything. But I've really never seen any self improvement program, whether it's an exercise program, a diet program, or a self help program like we're prescribing, that actually takes this into account. The fact that everyone quits. Everyone quits. We all have this fantasy that when we reach the target weight or when we reach a certain muscle mass or when we reach a state of happiness, that that's it. We're done. We're on easy street. We've crossed the line and we've entered a realm where no more effort is necessary. It sounds depressing to accept that ceaseless effort will be part of your life forever. But the truth is what we've found with the patients that we work with is that once they accept that, they're actually much happier 
because they accept that it takes effort and that effort is part of life and they're happier making that effort than than trying to get out of it. It's, it sounds, well, it's so powerful because now I'm not looking at, at that guy that has something that I don't. Like I'm imagining he's he's in some utopia or they're in yeah. some utopia. The utopia is not there. So then yeah. I can relax and just focus on my life. Is that right? That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah, we call the utopia. the um, That's the winner's circle. So, look, we both of us work in Hollywood. So we're working with a lot of people that are famous, that are very wealthy, powerful. And every one of them, when they come into our offices, say, where is this winner's circle? I don't feel like I'm in it. Nobody's in it, ex- yeah. you know, except people you imagine are, are in the winner's circle. And what we try to do is create a loser's circle. It's not that we're creating losers. What we're saying <laughs> is the loser accepts reality. He accepts there is no easy street. There's no magic. And because of that, he recovers more quickly from his losses. And so the loser circle are the people, or let me put it this way, to be in the loser circle, you don't just have to lose, you have to lose and then recover from the loss, which is basically the second book that we're writing now is going to be about how to do that. But that, and I think it's very important for men to hear this and understand that that is the real prowess, that's the real power. The other thing is an illusion. And and that illusion is being sold to us on every billboard, in every television commercial. I mean, essentially what they're saying is, buy this product, drink this beer, use this condom, whatever it is, and you will be exonerated. You'll be you in the winner's circle. You, you'll be You'll done. be in the win. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah. it seems like this fear of falling down... We can't afford to fall down because we won't get up. We can't afford to go in the loser circle because then it's over. It, it, we don't recognize that uh, for what I get is like real courage or real confidence comes from, you know what? Even if this doesn't work out, even if I get clipped at the knees and kicked in the nuts, I'll get back up. I'll find a way. Exactly. Real strength isn't I'm never going to fall down. Real strength is I've fallen down so many times and gotten myself back up again. Go ahead, do your worst. I can face it. Yeah, and that person can take risks, change his life, do new things, etc. Yeah, I can tell you a little story about this if you want. Please, I'll make it real quick. Um, I treated this guy. He was out here in L.A. I'll just say I don't want him to be identifiable. Very, 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 very successful you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in the bank, etc. At some point, um, I think it was in his late 40s, maybe early 50s, he said, I've done enough, I've worked hard enough, i got enough money. He said, I'm going to fold up my tent. By, by that he meant, I'm not going to make any more of an effort. I don't even want to have to get up in the morning. Hmm. So he tried this against my advice. <laughs> and... <laughs> Needless to say, and what happened was, and it didn't take long, it took, I would say, three to four months, he was in a crushing depression, because he, because on the one hand, I don't have to get up in the morning, but on the other hand, if I don't have to get up in the morning, who the fuck am I, you know, is my life worth anything, does it mean anything, etc., and the depression got so, and he fought me on this idea of, you, you better put that tent up again. You know, if you try to close it, you're never going to get out of this depression. And he actually had to go away, you know, had to be hospitalized for a couple months. When he came out of the hospital, he was convinced now um, 
he 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 wouldn't even think of folding his tent. He doesn't consider things in terms of how easy can they make life. He considers things in terms of how meaningful are they. What do they add to my life? Because I'm going to have to keep doing this. The money in the bank has no bearing on that one way or the other. And he was a person that ended up using the Jeopardy tool a lot when he got out of the hospital. And and was it because that he had spent his life trying to get to that that imaginary finish line in the winner's circle and he was there and it was just kind of, well, now what? Yeah, exactly. It was exactly now what I don't... Really, you know, what he tried to do was tell himself, oh, I, I'm not really feeling that good about being in the winner's circle, so I need a reward to make me feel good. And then, it's very common, he thought the reward was to completely give up on his disciplines. You know, he there were a variety of things he did. He did some creative things, not for money. He stopped doing that. He stopped working out. He used the box hole. He stopped all of it. So, and that appeals to... Um, the human tendency to be lazy. There's a huge um, hidden strand of of laziness in our culture. Um, You know, the two, for for both of us, I think the two basic emotions or tendencies we're trying to fight is number one is laziness and number two is fear. And and both of those things tend not to um, get discussed directly. I mean, it's one of the reasons we veered off a little bit from regular psychotherapy because we felt these were bottom line issues. Why? Because these were motivational issues, and we felt motivation as as a uh, absolute need wasn't really part of normal psychotherapy for, for whatever reason. I, I just want to add one thing, because the story says something else about life, which is that, you know, deep down, all of us want to feel that our lives have meaning you know, that we're alive for a purpose, that, that we have a sense that um, the world might be a little bit of a less good place if we weren't here. Now, we can't actually achieve that without effort. That's the lie, is that somehow by by being lazy or by, by being passive, that you can still actually have meaning in your life. But meaning comes with forward motion, and forward motion is only achievable with effort. So without making an effort every day, you actually lose the meaning, the sense of that, that my life is actually meaningful. Well, not only that, but then once we take an effort, and we've now made ourselves vulnerable. Now we're at risk, which was the yeah. other the other kind of dark motivator that you were talking about, or the thing that kills motivation, I, I think is how you phrased it. So... Um, all right, that, that's the trap, right? That's what we're that's what we're working. Uh, that's where we're heading off here is that that fear and that that sense of laziness that's just inherent in us as um, as humans. But so you've got how to get unstuck, you know, how to get out of procrastination, how to get out of a grudge, how to stop feeling insecure, how to get out of a negative thinking or this black cloud, and then how to get off your ass, you know, like get disciplined yeah. and, and do this day to day. You yeah. guys are very solution focused. Um, whereas most therapists can be problem focused and I'm not going to criticize therapists here. I, my wife is a therapist. I was in a men's group with, that was a therapist for years. Um, uh, but as a coach, I, 
I have a bias towards looking at the present and the future and, and taking action versus digging around in the past. And I know a lot of guys too. I think that there's a lot of guys that are um, kind of cock and eye or, or don't really trust the therapeutic process. So, I, I, you know, Phil, I'd love to hear your story about how you've turned the corner. You, you, you guys are bringing kind of a new model to this where it's more focused on these solutions. Well, here's what happened to me, and I think something similar happened to that. This was a long time ago. I mean, I'm 66, so this was, um, let's say, 35 years ago. Which And psychotherapy at that time was even more passive. I mean, there's a lot of good things happening in psychotherapy now, but they, at that time it was mostly psychoanalysis, you know, go and lie down on a couch and talk to a guy that won't even look you in the eye for five times a week, whatever. So I was, whatever I was, 27, 28 years old, and I was getting my first patients. I was, I was in a, you know, psychiatric residency program, and I noticed something right away, which is, the way that we were taught and trained was very, I don't want to say lackadaisical or lazy, it wasn't, but it was very uh, overly patient. Let's say that the pace of it was very slow. Like, let's say somebody comes in and they're, they're telling me, I am severely depressed. I don't want to kill myself, but I can't get out of bed in the morning. Um, my wife's about to leave me. I, I'm having financial problems, etc. Now, my... Um, inclination wouldn't be to go back into that person's past, at least not right then. What that person needs is some sense of hope. And there's only one way he's going to get that sense of hope, and that's that the symptom, the sense of depression, gets a little bit uh, smaller. It's not going to go away. It's not an unrealistic thing, but it gets a little bit smaller, and maybe he can take a couple of action steps. Maybe he can restructure his life. Maybe he can reconnect to his friends. Maybe he can find something that's meaningful to him that he could do or begin even in a small way. Now, the, and patients were craving this. And um, frankly, I felt guilty. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't taking their money yet. I was, I was a psychiatric resident, but still, I was taking up their time, and I felt like we weren't instrumentally attacking the problem they were facing in the moment. And if you don't, and again, this is more of a masculine thing, but it applies to females too. If the person can't, get some result, if they can't get some change that's palpable, even if it's small, they lose hope. And I didn't feel that was right. Um, it's funny, I went to one of my supervisors and I said, look, the, the training is great, you guys are great, but what about this when somebody, or, you know, what if a patient's agoraphobic, they can't leave the house? What if someone has panic attacks, they can't fly? You know, there's a million different, they can't control their temper. So I say to the supervisor, look, isn't there anything we can do near-term, near-term meaning as soon as I meet the person to give them some hope, to give them some relief? And the guy says, absolutely not. Do not offer them um, anything. If they're steadfast as a patient, they will come up with their own solution, which I thought was the most ridiculous thing I ever heard. I mean, wow. Person, and, and I said, I was a wife at that age, I uh, you want them to be patient and wait for their own solution. Okay, I guess that's why you call them patients. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So anyway, I said about, you know, basically um, flailing around um, and trying to make up my own um, solution to this. Or, what I, you know, I started to call them tools, which is how do you change someone's state? How do you make some inroads into their symptoms? 
immediately. And, you know, I, it was just trial and error. I call it, it was free association instead of the patient free associating, which is what the psychoanalysts do. It was me, the doctor, free associating to try to develop these tools. And Barry came along pretty shortly after that. He developed a lot of his own tools. We worked together on it, but always from, with the point of view of this needs to work, at least to an extent, right now. It's not that we wouldn't go into the person's past. We would, but we found if we could get them going in the present and give them some relief, they would look at the past in a much more realistic way. And by that, I mean they wouldn't look at the past as an excuse for their problems in the present because that doesn't lead to helping the person. It leads to crippling them as far as I'm concerned. And I, I had very much the same experience that Phil did. I, I felt that my training had taught me to analyze problems, but not to solve them. And every single one of the patients that I was seeing was asking for, you know, it was literally like, give me something, something that I can throw up against this enemy, you know, whether it's depression or anxiety or, or you know, sleeplessness or, or whatever. And I, I, when I met Phil, it was like a revelation to me that you could actually give patients a weapon that they could use during the week and they could come back and say it worked it didn't work it worked in this situation I forgot to use it in this situation you could refine them over time but immediately I could see that people were coming back with a greater sense of hope a greater sense of like thank God you've armed me with something that I can throw against my problem they're empowered. They're no longer victims. Now they're they're creators they're in that space of okay I have choice I can I've got something I can do here yeah, like, psychotherapy is one of the only areas of endeavor, and again, it's, this is not as true as it used to be, where nobody wanted tools. A tool was like a dirty word. So a tool was associated with a quick fix and superficiality, and believe me, it's not the case. It's, it's one of the reasons I think both of us attracted a lot of male patients. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, because it's it's... You know, the males want that. They're, they're open to it, and they want it. One thing about males, you know, you can say that they're dense or they're insensitive or whatever you want to say about them. But when a, what I found, not 100%, but in general, once a male says, this is the problem, this is the solution, a lot of times they meet it with a tremendous amount of discipline. Yeah. And, you know, that's a potential that we try to tap into. Very good. Well, let's talk a little bit about the tools because... Um, they, they require a leap. You guys use the word faith. You guys use the words higher powers. Um, I, I could just imagine all kinds of, of, you know, red flags going up when we talk about at the core of this, there's a lot of visualization. So when, 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 when the, when a typical guy thinks of visualizations, he starts to think of this new age stuff and this kind of happy thoughts and sticking your head in the ground and ignoring reality. Um, uh, but how are, how are the, what you're doing in the tools? the visualizations you're, you're talking about in the tools, how are these different than uh, some of this, let's just make believe? The difference is that the visualizations that we use are for uh, a deeper purpose. So if you're afraid of something and you use the reversal of desire and, and visualize the fear that you have of that thing and then visualize yourself moving forward into the fear with courage. The point is not what you're visualizing. The point is that you start to actually feel courageous in the face of fear. 
and that and that after you use that tool, you might actually be able to take that action that you were scared to take. So that you know, a lot of what I think. Let me say it this way: where where New Age philosophy, I think, falls down is that they is that they stop at visualizing and they deny the existence of certain forces, whatever you want to call them. Courage, to me, is a force; it's not a thought, and the visualization has to be for a purpose and the purpose has to be to bring up those forces that we need in everyday life to solve our problems. So these are more like character qualities that you, that the visualizations are bringing forth and, and saying, come on, we need you on board. We need this right now. We need your courage. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. You know, when I'm worried, I need gratitude and I need it now. And the visualization is really just to bring up that sense of gratitude. What were you going to say, Phil? I forgot. It was a good point. It was amazing. I could feel it. Would <laughs> have put us all in the winner's circle. Well, I want to make a, a, another thing about visualizations is, you know, sports guys use them. You know, they talk about it very, you know, you watch uh, Sunday afternoon golf and, and the commentators like right now he's visualizing his shot. He's seeing it go up and over and down the bank. And, you know, it's very normal that, that he would use that visualization to then make the, the minute adjustments in his swing to get there. But there's also the sense of like if we're laying in bed or we're driving in the car, we can get lost in our thoughts, imagine ourselves in a conflict and actually, you know, there go my adrenal glands. I'm actually feeling like I'm in a, in a physical conflict with someone, you know, that I'm in a fight or flight kind of a thing. So it seems like by going into these visualizations, we can get stuck in the black cloud and into these negative places and, and spiral out. Our body says, hey, we're actually here. But then there's also this sense of we can use that to build ourselves up and say, look, you can actually do this. The body doesn't seem to, I don't know if it doesn't know the difference, but it seems like, how would you, how would you put that? Most problems, not all, but most problems have to do with the thinking mind, or what they, they call the um, cerebral cortex, you know, the, the front part of the brain. And that's where thinking, and, you know, once you start to think, basically, in most things, you're fucked. Because at that point, <laughs> that'll be the name of our third book. <laughs> thinking gets fucked. Um... And the, so the re, the reason is the thinking mind wants to be right. It wants to be certain, and life doesn't work like that. So what a visualization does is it bypasses thinking mind. It goes right to the deeper parts of the brain. Or if you like to say it psychologically, visualization will speak to your unconscious directly, and it'll bypass the middleman. Exactly. So that's one thing you need to know about visualization. The second thing is, unlike some of these, uh, the New Age, um, what do you want to call it? Let's say New Age uh, meditations and visualizations, we assume the universe is in motion. In other words, everything's moving, everything's changing all the time. And what you need is the power, the will, and the knowledge to keep up with the changing world. So... A New Age meditation, a lot of times, is very soothing, and there's nothing wrong with that, but it's like taking you into a cloud. It's kind of like a pink cloud. Our visualizations have the exact opposite purpose. We're assuming things are in motion, there are demands on you, there's adversity coming in, it's never going to stop, and the tools work, and we always take pride in this. The tool has to work at the worst 
times, at the most difficult times. Um, and most of the New Age um, meditations, visualizations, aren't oriented towards that. I don't want to. I want to be fair to them. It's not that they won't deal with it, but with us, that's the crux of what we're doing. And again, if you can do use the tools when things are at their worst, and you can use it quickly, you'll get a kind of confidence and a kind of sense of mastery over your life that I don't know how else you could get, frankly. Oh, can you can you share some? Uh, you know, I'll give it. I'll throw it to you, Barry. What are some of the changes you've seen in clients over the years by using the tools? Maybe a little like they started here and they ended up here. I know you can't give any specifics on who. We just, I just want to hear some stories. You know, one of the first patients I ever saw was a writer who, you know, like many writers who I see wasn't actually writing, <laughs> you know, it's really hard to write, to be fair to writers, it's solitary, it's difficult, it's tedious, so they'll do just about anything to avoid it, I mean, if I had a dollar for every writer who's come in and said, you know, I did the laundry today, <laughs> I'd be the richest man in the world, because it's just difficult, um, so he was one of the first patients I saw, I, I had learned the reversal of desire from Phil, it's the tool that gets you to do things that you avoid, and I gave the tool to him and he just took off. I mean, he started writing the next day and didn't stop until within one year he had completed four full-length professionally written screenplays. Um, And it was it was astonishing to me. I mean, it was, it was amazing. Now, I don't, again, I don't mean to make it sound magical. We had to meet once a week. I had to refine the tool for him. I had to, you know, encourage him and keep him going and, you know, et cetera. And he had to work really, really hard at it. It was not, it was not easy. It wasn't natural. But the results were better than anything I'd ever seen before in, in my life. It wasn't I, one and done, He, but this was the path. Like using this tool and tweaking it and staying engaged, that was the, that was the road for him. It was very clear to me that that tool changed his entire life. I mean, he basically said when he completed therapy, you know, you, and I, I don't mean this to flatter myself or anything, but he said, look, without you, I would never have been the successful and I wouldn't be this happy. Mm. Mm. Phil, do, is there a favorite story you like to tell? Well, there's an interesting, it's really a, a wild story in some sense. This guy was an agent, everything that that implies. Um, and I treated him, he was a mid-level agent, and I treated him for 14 years. This is serious, this is true. The guy didn't do a fucking thing I told him for 14 years. <laughs> <laughs> he would come in because he was nervous and anxious, and I, I could talk him out of it, calm him down. And um, then he would he would go off the reservation again. He wouldn't use the tools. He wouldn't do anything. Fourteen years later, and God bless him, I have no idea why this happened. It had nothing to do with me. He decided he was actually going to work in therapy. And um, I draw these pictures um, to show people, remind them um, of what the tool does. Like for the reversal of desire, just an example. I draw them a little circle, and with a huge fat arrow leaving the circle. Now, the circle is what we call the comfort zone. It's the warm bath zone. Now, what is that for an agent? For an agent, it means he'll call people to try to get jobs for his clients, but there'll be a whole strata of people, and these are the people he considers to be in the inner circle, the in-group that he won't call because he's afraid to call them. 
Okay, nobody knows that except me. No, nobody really knows who an agent is calling and who they're not calling. But it, it put a glass ceiling on his career. He couldn't get past the point he wanted to. And uh, the only way he was going to do that was to make these risky phone calls and make himself vulnerable. Anyway, 14 years later, he decided that he was going to solve this problem. So he, so he had all these pictures that I drew for him, and he would write down what the tools are. It was before the book, way before the book existed. Um, and he, he kept a little dossier, a little library of all this information. Every morning before he went to work, he would go to this, I guess it was Starbucks or something. He would sit there for a half hour and go over and over the information and the tools, and he'd, he'd have an attack plan, like today, I'm going to call this guy and that guy, and I'm going to use the reversal of desire. The other tool about uh, confidence is called inner authority, which allows you to get into a flow state in front of people that normally intimidate you, etc., etc. And he became my best student. And I would say within about 18 months, he had gone up, uh, I would say, three levels in terms of his career. He, he, he got to the point where he could call anybody in the city. His clientele was in, was obviously thrilled, very happy because he was getting them more jobs. And he was starting to attract um, higher level talent than he ever had in his life. Wow. Um, so it, it's a striking story because it, it wasn't me. I was there for the first 14 years busting my gut and he just wasn't listening. Um, but when so, he turned the corner, when he turned the corner and started using the tools, that's when things took off. That's yeah. when things took off. It was almost like scientific proof that they worked. Yeah. And that was Ari and, Gold from Entourage, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can't comment on something. Can't comment on Ari Gold. Okay. All right. Even though he's fictitious. All right. Well, I, you know, I, what I like about this is we've been talking, there's some, there's some deep stuff here and both of you share some very deep moments that of your path and your own journey, journey that helped bring these tools to existence. You guys share that in the book. We didn't talk about it today, but um, it, you know, even just for the guy who may not, it may not be that big or that deep. Like he just wants to go talk to the girl uh, across yeah. the room or ask for a raise or get over a breakup or start a workout plan or just stick with something. These tools are, are you know, they're going to help they're going to help if they if they're willing to get in there and do the work and stick with it so they're very practical very down to earth very much applicable to everyday problems that people have all right. I'm a big believer in, in the work you guys have been doing. I got the book when it came out a while back. I'm glad that you guys are still in it and still beating the drums. For the guys out there listening, go get this book. Go to thetoolsbook.com. That's thetoolsbook.com. And you guys also have a handy app available too. Um, so if the guy's in a situation, you got the tools right there in your pocket. You can literally hear Phil or me walking you through a tool right, right before you're about to go up to that girl you want to ask out. The app is important because, I mean, I made up most of these tools, and I'll forget them all the time. I'll forget to use them. Sometimes I forget what they are. So when you have the app, you don't have an excuse. You know, all you need is the sense I need help. And do you, in the recording field, do you ever, like, call a guy, like, you motherfucker? Do you ever, like, call a guy a name or anything? Um, yeah, I do all the time. <laughs> 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 All right. Phil Stutz, Barry Michaels, authors of The Tools. Please go get this book. I think it's one of the most important. I think this is one of the most important uh, interviews we've had on The New Man. For the guy out there that, that is tired of talking about the stuff and wants to get in there and get his hands dirty and actually make the change, here you go. We just laid it out for you. Thank you so much, guys. Thanks Thank for you having us. So 
There's so much more to The New Man than these interviews. So visit thenewmanpodcast.com and join the mailing list so you never miss another update. Thanks for listening.